So I'm on the episode 467, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money 9-9. I love when dates like that happen. That's so cool. 9-9, 2016. Ask Farnoosh, episode 467. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. And welcoming you back from, I guess, the summer. It's fall now. The leaves have actually fallen off the trees here in Brooklyn. Even though it's still like 80 degrees outside, it looks like fall on the streets of Brooklyn, which is kind of nice. I'm, I'm at, fall is my favorite time of year. Sophia's here with me as well. Sophia, welcome back. Thank you. What's your favorite season? I like summer, but I don't hate fall. I do enjoy fall. I'm not you don't big hate into the fall. Okay, that's I don't hate it. I'm not big into the pumpkin spice latte phenomenon, Ugh. but I'll because <laughs> it's not really pumpkin. I, like fall. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was at Starbucks over the weekend, and um, they were already promoting. You know, it wasn't on the menu yet, but they were teasing it. And I was like, can we just take a moment? It's Labor Day weekend, okay? Calm down, I know. Starbucks. They already have um, Halloween candy out at the supermarkets. No. This past weekend, I was like, let's just make it through Labor Day, people. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Like, I still have some weight to lose from the summer. Like, don't need to be <laughs> stuffing my face with Kit Kats yet, uh, although it will happen. <laughs> So this week, I uh, went to LA and was there for a very short trip, uh, like 36 hours. As you may have heard, last week I mentioned on Ask Farnoosh, I was heading to LA this week to film The Doctors. It's a very popular, long-running talk show featuring doctors. Obviously, it's the name of the show. And I was surprised that they wanted to do a financial segment. And they tapped me and they said, would you like to come out? And I said, sure. The producers kind of gave me carte blanche and they were like, well, what are your ideas? I was like, I don't like that when they do that to me sometimes. I'm like, can you just give me some <laughs> like some direction? Because like, it's like, do a financial segment. Go. Uh, <laughs> well, tell me a little about your audience. You know, So we ended up doing a segment. It hasn't aired yet, but I'll give you the, the behind the scenes. We decided to film a segment on how to make money without really working, which I like because – you know, here on the show, we talk a lot about all sorts of things, saving, budgeting, credit. But my passion topic is, of course, how to earn more. And um, I got a chance to highlight some of the great resources out there for people who want to earn a little bit more on the side. And it's great timing because it's fall almost. And this is really the season when we spend a lot of money. You know, summer's busy too, but we've got back to school. We've got the holidays, travel, gifts. So it's uh, if there was ever a good time to learn how to make a little bit more money on the side, now is your chance. So that episode, stay tuned, is going to air later this month, I believe. And uh, it was nice. I was out in LA for, like I said, 36 hours. First night, I organized a small little dinner with some LA friends, a very eclectic group. I don't think anyone in the group knew each other, but I knew everybody. And <laughs> that's always fun when you play kind of, you know, matchmaker between amongst friends. And I had Lewis Howes there. 
as we know, he's been a guest on the show. Also, my friend from high school, a friend from college, my agent was there. Um, it was again very eclectic. Like it was, it was really great to see all the personalities at play, and um, it was fun. It was a nice. It was uh, a little, I was excited for everybody to meet and. Um, it beats, you know, getting fast food or takeout, you know, like your only night in LA. It was a nice uh, excuse to get together and, and uh, have a nice dinner. So anyway, that was my week. How was your week, Sophia? It was good. It was quiet without you here, but we had plenty to keep us moving along. So it was a good week. <laughs> I try to bring you on some trip. On some tri- you went to Finnovate, right? I did. I did. And it was really cool to see some of the new fintech coming out um, and connect with some of those people who are, you know, coming out with those apps and technologies. So I learned a lot and hopefully we can put some of that information in some of your future articles. And yeah, so I think that'll be a great, um, great way to get the message out to everyone on the show. Yes. Everyone listening, if you have or know about a cool app or website that has to do with saving or earning or budgeting or whatever in the money sphere, let us know because Sophie and I are always mining for that stuff. Uh, it's always good to be able to share with our audience here and you know our readers, hey, there's an app for that. You know, you want to learn how to save more, invest better. I think uh, these days technology is where is that? So if there's something we can, you know, direct people to, it makes um, it makes it all the more likely that they will follow the advice or follow through on their on their goals. And speaking of following through, let's help some people achieve their goals, answer their questions right now. Tell me who has been writing in. All right, so. We're jumping in with Mary Beth's question. She's 39 mm-hmm. and says healthcare costs seem to be skyrocketing. And she's thinking about buying some long term healthcare insurance and wants to know if you could go over the basics of what it should cover and maybe recommend a good source for some more information. Sure. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like healthcare costs are skyrocketing. They are. And I'm sorry if you are using the EpiPen these days. Uh. That story, it's just it. Ugh. Why is the CEO quote saying no one's hurting more than me on this news? Like, really? I think <laughs> there are other people that are being negatively impacted by this price hike than you. I'm pretty sure she took home a nice pay package from this uh, increase. I'm sure you've all heard about the increase in the EpiPen, which is terrible because the EpiPen is like life saving, right? Why would you? Yeah. Such, it's a tool for people who are most vulnerable. And I just feel it's like the ultimate taking advantage, I think. And gosh, it's – I don't know how their PR people are going to clean up that mess. But back to your question, Mary Beth, and it's a good one about uh, long-term care insurance. I mean, I think you're 39. You're young still, but you know this is kind of the time to be thinking about you know your future and healthcare and what those costs are going to maybe be like and long-term – Health insurance, long-term care insurance, just as a you know primer, this is basically a supplemental insurance that you would want to have in the event that you know you are in retirement, you're aging, and you suddenly cannot take care of yourself in one of in two of several ways. So that you have to qualify for at least two what they call activities of daily living that you can no longer independently perform. Bathing, dressing, eating, transporting yourself from place to place. 
Um, there's seven of them. You have to qualify for at least two that you can't do independently. And then you would qualify for long-term care. And that's when a physician or health professional um, comes to you or you go to them for long-term care. This is important because insurance, typical insurance, and sometimes other kinds of health coverage does not provide for this sort of care. It's not covered by health insurance. It it may not be covered by Medicare, Medicaid. So long-term care insurance can be a financial lifesaver for people who are in their 60s, 70s, older, who suddenly um, need to maybe go live in a nursing home or have someone come live with them and make sure that they're getting their medication, that they can move from place to place, from room to room. We don't like to think of ourselves ever in that type of situation, but the uh, this really startling statistic, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says 70% of people over the age of 69, 65, excuse me, will need some type of long-term health care. The key to this, to saving money on this, because it's not inexpensive insurance, is to get it sooner than later. And the advice is that around 50, maybe even a little bit earlier, believe it or not, is when you might want to apply for long-term health care. The You lock in the price at the age that you're in, and of course, you're going to be paying for it a little bit longer, but at least your monthly premium won't be as high. And some resources for you, Mary Beth, where you can learn more about this, aarp.org is just a wealth of information for all things retirement and health insurance and um, senior living. And um, so go there. There's a lot of information about long-term health care on their website, but also the uh, National Association of Insurance Commissioners, their website, naic.org. And another website, grab your pen if you haven't, or just you know hit replay, is the American Association of Long-Term Care Insurance website, aaltci.org. And that offers a list of companies. So check out those websites, AARP. AALTCI.org and NAIC.org. But it's a, it's important. I think, look, 70% of people over the age of 65 will need some type of long-term care. The alternative to long-term care is to just make sure you save every pretty penny into retirement. And, you know, those estimates are pretty staggering too, as far as how much money you may need out of pocket for healthcare in retirement and it's anywhere from you know a few hundred dollars a month to thirteen fifteen hundred dollars a month maybe more so it's the big wild card in retirement and a lot of people are seriously thinking about long-term health care uh, insurance because it at least gives you that added security that buffer um, if you plan on living a long life you might need some help along the way to do some of the basic stuff that we take for granted today as young people. Hopefully that didn't overwhelm you, Mary Beth. I hope that was helpful. We'll have all of these websites in the transcript at somoneypodcast.com. If you missed anything, don't worry. We have it all for you. All right, Sophia, what's next? All right. So I think the next question is a great question that many of the listeners struggle with in terms of just trying to prioritize 
personal finance goals, as well as paying off loans. Mm -hmm. And the question is from Alyssa. Her husband is headed back to school for his master's degree and will have about $80,000 in loans by the end of it. They're both 30, debt-free. They both have 401ks, which have both been vested. And now they want to save for their first house, continue to invest in their retirement, and pay off his loans. So they want to know how they should manage all of this. Should they pay off the loans before buying a house or vice versa? They're not sure what to do. Hmm. Yeah. So hierarchy of financial needs. I think that these student loans, assuming that their interest rates aren't super high, it's not credit card debt. If it was credit card debt, Alyssa, I would say try to knock that down as ASAP as much as possible before you start shopping for a home. And the main reason, two reasons there. I mean, one is you don't really want to have the the burden because taking on a home and a mortgage, that has huge costs associated with it. You want to make sure you have as much as possible a clean, a clean financial plate and that you don't have these burdens tugging at you outside of the mortgage. Because once you're a homeowner, we all know, I know, you know, it's like there's a lot of out of pocket costs. There's, um, maintenance and of course taxes and everything outside of the mortgage. It adds up. The less you have to worry about outside of that, like the less stressful it'll be and the more manageable it'll be to be a homeowner. But with these student loans, I would assume that the interest rates are not terrible. 80,000 is is high, but maybe your husband will be graduating and we can can get the job to be able to pay that off um, with his income. And so it'll be managed, right? And student loan debt versus credit card debt, when it comes to your credit score, it's not as much of a dinger. You know, the credit card debt is really, if it was 80,000 in credit card debt, I would say don't even bother applying for a mortgage because I don't think any bank is going to give you a mortgage because what it will look at is your debt to credit ratio. I'm sorry, your debt to income ratio. It'll see 80,000 in loans, $93,000 in income. Not very good. Uh, that's a little too close for comfort. And so, that being said, this is credit. This is student loan debt. It's it's looked upon a little bit more favorably, and it's a uh, it's the type of loan that is not revolving debt. So you know, underwriters will hopefully get that. So my point in saying all this is that you don't need to delay your house hunting. Um, by too much. You know, you want to make sure you have all these other ducks in a row, right? That you have income, that you have savings, that you have good credit. That's what's going to matter when you're applying for a mortgage. The loans can still be in the picture too, but if you can show that you have income and that you have savings and that you have been paying your bills on time, that's going to be that's going to all work in your favor. And but you need to be the one that's going to be the judge of things, right? The bank could say to you, yeah, here's all this money for a mortgage. You guys seem to be having everything under control. But they don't really know. They don't really know what's happening behind closed doors. They don't know that maybe you come home and you're stressed because you have debt and you're not happy with your job. And, you know, so you have to be the the, the number one judge of your financial. You have to kind of do your own stress test. Okay. Because banks sometimes, even to this day, I think they will over lend. Um, when actually you should be borrowing less. So just keep that in mind. I think, you know, as far as hierarchy here, it's obviously uh, important to make sure that 
you prepare for when these $80,000 in loans come due. So find out what's the monthly minimum that you have to pay and when will that kick in and make sure that you are, are prepared for that, that you're continuing to save in your retirement. That should never stop. And that you commit to paying off these student loans. And in the meantime, while your husband's in school, maybe you start looking at homes um, first casually just to kind of see what's out there, what's within your price range. And then maybe at some point you decide to get more serious. But know that when that point happens, you want to make sure you have everything in line so that you can hit the ground running. It's a very competitive housing market right now. Houses are going within days, weeks, multiple bids. So you want to make sure that you have a good down payment, that you've been pre-approved by a bank, that you um, you know, just are ready to move on your on your thoughts and your desires. Otherwise, you know, things could go very quickly and you could miss out. But um, no, no reason to really not do something here, but just it's more about being aware of the implications of becoming a homeowner and having student loans. Um, you just have to be able to take everything on with responsibility and an understanding that you know that these are you're you're going to be putting on your big girl pants here. You know, becoming a homeowner and having eight thousand dollars in loans those those are two big responsibilities. Um, but you make good money, and your husband, when he graduates, will hopefully make good money, and the two of you together can budget this and work through this. Um, so that's what I would say to that. Um, thankfully, it's not credit card debt. <laughs> My answer would be much different, but it's student <laughs> loans, and you know, this is all assuming that your husband would be able to find work. Because I think on your income, paying off 80000 in loans, that would be tough along with everything else. Our next question comes from Catherine. And she's only spent about 50% of each paycheck and the rest is in her savings account for the last two years. And she, for the year, she's already maxed out her Roth IRA and 403B. And the only form of debt she has is her mortgage and student loan payments. And she says, well, I could pay off my student loans and still have a safety net. I don't want to because the loans will be forgiven in seven years under PSLF. Um, But she wants to know how she can get out of her extreme budgeting mindset and not feel guilty for spending money all the time. Guilty for spending money all (laughs) the time? Just she's not spending money. (laughs) <laughs> I know. What's this guilt? It's it doesn't it it's based on nothing. Um I I guess it's a good problem to have, but there but this is this actually raises a very interesting very interesting thought and revelation. Like there are people out there that are afraid to spend and just like there are people who are uh the opposite. They they're afraid to. They don't save. They have a fear of scarcity. They, um, as a result, maybe go to the deep end and and spend and spend, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. I think that frugal fatigue is a real thing, but we have to think about spending not just on things. Sometimes, Catherine, but you know, enjoying your money can mean a lot of things, and maybe you just need to open your mind to. Um, exploring that some some more. So, you know, maybe you don't want to have stuff and I get that because stuff doesn't make you happy. But what about experiences? What about people? Like where can you go places with people and have memories and create memories? 
Um, studies show that that actually does improve happiness and that is money very well invested. So thinking about investing your money, not just spending it, uh, I think could be a good mindset shift for you. And then there's also donating. You know, if you want to make, if you want to feel good about your spending um, and not have this guilt, then maybe it's about showering others with the money that you have saved and being generous and being uh, charitable. So finding the charities that you uh, love and want to support and doing that. I think there's, there's, there wouldn't hopefully be any guilt associated with that. So it's, my advice to Catherine Sophia is really just to open up her mindset to the possibilities of what her money can do to make the world a better place. And if she's happy and content in her life and doesn't see a need to spend in her life, then how are some ways that she can improve the lives of others? You know, becoming, saving money and becoming wealthy and growing your money. Uh, you know, I, I think we all go through this phase and I went through this phase too. It's like, well, I, I make enough for myself. Why should I, how much more do I really need to save? How much more do I really need to make? But when you suddenly start to realize that you're not the only one in the world, that there are others out there that could benefit from your success, that's exciting to me, you know, and that, that is a, one of the reasons why I work hard is so that I can give back. I don't feel guilty about it. I look forward to it. And maybe Catherine, that's something that you would enjoy doing as well. So that's what I would say to Catherine. And don't feel, don't feel guilty. I mean, you've worked hard. You're obviously doing all the right things. So if it helps too, you could create a separate account that's like your personal slush fund, right? And um, you just know that this is money that you've put aside after you've done all the right responsible things with your money that you can now spend on others, on yourself, charity, whatever you want. But you should enjoy life. There's no point in making money and saving it if you're not happy and enjoying your life. And no, buying stuff is not going to make you happy, but experiences do, vacations do, donating, all this stuff makes you not only happy, er, but also I think more grateful for what you have. I think that's great advice. And with all of the holidays coming up, I mean, they'll be here before we know it. It's the perfect time to think about donating and giving back to charity. And I'm sure if Catherine's like most people, you know, at some point in the coming months where all, all, most of us will be, you know, contacted by someone to donate money to some sort of fund or charity or nonprofit. And so I think that's great advice. Yeah. We just wrote a piece or we worked on a piece, Sophia and I, on how to make the most of your charitable contribution and it's going to be out in the December issue of Oprah Magazine. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But it, but the bottom line is you want to be proactive about your giving. I know we're going to get a lot of solicitations in the coming months for donating our dollars, which helps sometimes to remind us to be charitable. But you ultimately want to give to organizations that firstly, you feel very passionate about and that you've done the research as well to know that those are the organizations that are going to do well with your money and and put as much of your dollars directly towards the cause that they are promoting. This is a great question. I, we've never gotten a question like this before. How many of you <laughs> out there are suffering from saving fatigue, frugal fatigue, as Catherine calls it? That's a good blog. That is. I like you should trademark that, Catherine, and, and you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> she has a new project on this. Frugal side. fatigue. <laughs> All right. Uh, we have a question here from Mark. Yes, our token mail 
writing in a question, but he first wants to thank you for answering one of his questions a few weeks back on settling debt. Oh, sure. Wanted to update you and say that he was able to settle for 90 cents to the dollar and increase his credit score a little bit. Good. So now he's back with another question and wants to know if you've done a so many show on closing costs when purchasing a home. He'd love to hear your thoughts on that topic. A lot of housing questions. Um, Lately, it seems. Well, uh, it's a great question. I don't know if it it merits an entire episode, but (laughs) I think that it's true. Closing costs, often we forget the toll of closing costs. And, you know, we always talk about the down payment and the interest rate on your mortgage and the mortgage, but um, closing costs can be anywhere from, I believe, two to 5% of the purchase price. And that usually is due at closing. So that's another lump sum that you want to anticipate and try to save for. However, in some cases, I mean, it's been a while since I bought property and since I've investigated this, but I think that on a case-by-case basis, sometimes you can roll your closing costs into the cost of the into the mortgage. So you amortize that. You end up paying obviously more than had you paid up front, but it does get amortized over like 30 years. And it's one more affordable way for people who don't have the cash, the liquidity to pay for, say, like if you're if you're buying a home for $300,000, your closing costs could be anywhere from six to, you know, $15,000. Not to mention you've just put, you know, 60K down for the down payment. So you might be a little empty uh, in your bank account by the time closing comes around. And in those cases, you could be able, you might be able to negotiate um, to, to fold in um, those closing costs into the mortgage and then the bank pays uh, the closing costs. So Mark, are you buying a house anytime soon? Maybe there's another question in there that you haven't asked us. Uh, let us know because <laughs> housing is one of my favorite topics. I know it's a really popular topic on this show. We know we thought that interest rates were going to be higher by now. I thought so. I have to refinance and... I've known about this since the beginning of the year, but it's been taking me a while. Uh, <laughs> I'll spare you the details. But basically, I was concerned because I thought by this time, rate rates would be higher. I would be out some money. But knock on wood, it uh, looks like rates are going to stay low for a, at least till the end of the year. I think nothing really crazy happens around an election. The government is not going to – and the Fed, they're not going to make crazy decisions right now. We can't stomach that right now. <laughs> we have a crazy election ahead. I know. So it's already time for our last question. And it comes from Ellie. She and her husband are buying her sister's share of the condo and have been paying the mortgage ever since they moved in together. And they want to know how they fairly calculate each of their um, each other's equity shares. Um, originally, they put 20% down, so 10% per sister, and then ref- but recently they refinanced and the place was appraised around 400000 And when they purchased it, it was back in the low 400000 um, And they want to know if there's maybe a formula they should use because ultimately they just want to make it fair for everyone involved. Okay. So from what I understand, Ellie... And her husband and her sister bought this condo at one point in 2006. I think it was just Ellie and her sister. And then when her husband moved in with her 
three years later and her sister moved out, he started contributing to the mortgage and the sister stopped contributing to the mortgage. Got it. And now she's moved out. Yes. And Ellie put down 10% and then her sister put down 10%. And now the question is, my sister's no longer living here. The house has appraised, has, I guess, risen in value. And in the event that they sell it, they want to know who gets how much. I mean, at the minimum, I think that her sister should get back what she put in plus whatever growth that, you know, the equity that, that has grown in the home. Let's say they bought the house at 450. Now it's 400. She should get 10% of the equity. She should be rewarded for any growth that the house has experienced. I know that maybe she hasn't been living in it the whole time and maybe hasn't been putting in any sweat equity. This is this is something that's um going to be have to be put in writing as soon as possible. I'm not a lawyer, but I think that her sister at least is entitled to her down payment back, assuming the house sells for more than what or at the same price or more than what they paid for it. If they're underwater, then that's a whole other ball game. But, you know, I would expect it's an investment. I gave 10%, whether I lived in the house or not, I gave 10%, the house got purchased and Maybe, you know, at the minimum, she gets her 10% back plus any, you know, extra froth from the uh, growth in the value of the home. But now I would say if Ellie and her husband are now the primary mortgage payers that and they're the ones that are fixing the light bulbs and, you know, paving the driveway and painting the walls and upkeeping the house, then they're kind of entitled to everything else. That's my view. This is sticky because we're talking about sisters. I, I would be curious. I think before you decide anything, Ellie, you need to have a like just a dinner table meeting with your sister and your husband there, and or maybe your husband's not there, but just sister to sister. Like, what would be fair to you, given that now my husband and I are primary mortgage holders here? We've been, you know, managing the house, and I know you had contributed to the down payment and some rent or some mortgage in the beginning. But you know, what would if we do sell it down the road? What do you think would be your fair share? And maybe that's all you need to hear and you agree with that. And you don't need to ask me. (laughs) But I think you have to have a conversation with her and see what her perspective is. The other thing that I would just say, a technical tip here is the deed. Okay. So sometimes people forget the difference between a mortgage and a deed. So obviously we know what a mortgage does, right? It's a piece of paper that basically says this is what the house what your loan is on the house. The house is collateral. Here's your monthly payment. In 30 years, you'll be the house will be yours. The deed describes who owns the house. And the deed, whatever, whatever the names are on the deed, are not the names that have to be on the mortgage. Did you know this? That just because you pay the mortgage doesn't necessarily mean you own the house. This is important distinction. So if your husband is now paying towards the mortgage, That's great. He's helping with the mortgage. But in the eyes of the law, when it comes time to sell the house, the owners of this home, I assume, are still you and your sister on that deed. Unless that deed changes, your husband is not owed anything when you go to sell the house. So you need to make sure that if you're going to create an addendum to the financial you know, relationship that you and your sister and your husband have to this home, that the deed reflects that as well, that you're all protected in the event that you go to sell, that you can rightfully say, my husband and I are going to get everything or 50% or whatever it is because 
we're on the deed. And maybe your sister is too. So you just have to, this is where a real estate attorney really, really is going to be worth every penny uh, because they're going to be able to streamline everything for you and make sure that they have assumed every case scenario, like if you sell the house, if you and your husband are still married, not married, you know, you just need to be sure that you have all your bases covered. So the information I'm giving you is just more of a things to think about as opposed to here's how it has to get done or should get done but just some things to think about. These are awesome questions, by the way. They really are. I feel like if you can Google it, don't ask Farnoosh. <laughs> if that's a good that's a good litmus test, right? If I can Google this, then I'm not asking Farnoosh. And these are not Googleable. <laughs> Google will not tell you how to figure out the ratio of uh, of my cut versus my sister's when I go to sell this house. Um, not that I gave you like the exact answer either, Ellie, but hopefully I gave you some things to think about. Talk to your sister, talk to an attorney, check the deed, see who's on there. Are you comfortable with that? And that might help to form your next steps. And that's a wrap, everyone. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you. How, so how many que- – just curious in, for re- listeners as well, how many questions – uh, behind are we? I should because we're not ahead. We have definitely more no. questions than we can tackle every week. Yeah, we're getting a lot um, of questions lately. So I would say we're a couple weeks behind, probably like two to three weeks. Okay. So that's just FYI for everybody. We will get to your question eventually, but it may take two to three weeks. If something is very urgent or timely, put that in your subject or in your in the body of your question. So we will try to address it sooner. Like if you're like, I'm, you know, getting married in two weeks and I know nothing about my husband's finances, <laughs> let us know and let us know it's urgent because um, that could change the course of the wedding. No, just kidding. Um, that's a joke. That's a joke. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. I hope you have a great Friday and hope your weekend is so money. <laughs> 